Great. Uh, if you turn to uh, page 489, if you've not been here the last few weeks, we're in the book of Nehemiah. Um, we'll talk a little bit about what's been going on in a minute. But I'm going to read. There's lots of long, complicated names, so I felt I'd be throwing somebody under the bus if I asked them to read. At least I've looked at this a few times. So um, we're going to start at chapter 6, verse 16, and read all the way through to the end of chapter 7. Verse 16, it says, uh, 15, sorry. So the war was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to (laughs) Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son, Jehohanan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. After the wall had been rebuilt and I'd set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, make them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. This is what I found written there. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nehum, and Barna. The list of the men of Israel, the descendants of Parosh, 2,172, of Shephatiah, 372, of Ara, 652, of Pahath Mohab, through the line of Joshua and Johab, 2,818, of Elam, 1,254, of Zatu, 845, of Zakai, 760, of Binwi, 748, of Babai, 628, of Asgad, 2322, of Adonikam, 667, of Bigvai, 2067, of Aden, 655, of Arta, through Hezekiah, 98, of Hashem, 328, of Bezai, 324, of Harith, 112, and of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netopha, 188, of Anathoth, 128, of Beth Asmapheth, 42, of Kiriath, Jerem, Kephira, and Beeroth, 743, of Ramah and Geba, 621, of Michmash, 122, it's a great name, of Bethel and Ai, 123, of the other Nebo, 52, of the other Elam, 1254, of Haram, 320, of Jericho, 345, of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721, of Senna, 3930. The priests, 
the descendants of Jediah through the family of <coughs> Jeshua, 973, of Immer, 1052, of Pashur, 1247, of Harim, 1017, the Levites, the descendants of Jeshua through the Cadmiel, through the line of Hodaviah, 74, the musicians, the descendants of Asaph, 148, the gatekeepers, the descendants of Shalom, Arthur, <coughs> Talman, Akub, Hatita, and Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the descendants of Ziha, Hashafa, Tabaoth, Keros, Sia, <coughs> Hayden, Lebana, Hagaba, Shaumai, Hanan, Gidel, Geha, Riha, Rezin, Nekeda, Gazam, Uza, Pasia, Besai, Meonim, Nefusim, Bag, Bakbuk, Another great one. Hakufa, Harhur, Basluf, Mehida, Hasha, Barkos, Sisera, Temah, Neziah, and Hatifa. The descendants of the servants of Solomon. The descendants of Sotai, Sophereth, Perida, Jala, Darkon, Gidel, Shephatia, Hatil, Pokereth, Hazabaim, and Amon. The temple servants and the descendants of the servants of Solomon. 392. The following came up from the towns of Tel-Melach, Tel-Hasha, Kerub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. The descendants of Deliah, Tobiah, and Nekedah, 642. And from among the priests, the descendants of Habiah, Hakoz, Barzillai, a man who had married a daughter of Barzillai the Gileadite, and was called by that name. These searched their family records, but they could not find them and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor therefore ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there should be a priest ministering with the Urim and Thummim. The whole company numbered 42,360. Besides their 7,337 male and female slaves, and they also had 245 male and female singers. There were 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Some of the heads of the families contributed to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 dalits of gold, 50 bowls, and 530 garments for priests. Some of the heads of the families gave to the treasury for the work 20,000 dalits of gold and 2,200 miners of silver. The total given by the rest of the people was 20,000 dalits of gold, 2,000 miners of silver, and 67 garments for priests. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the temple servants, along with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their own towns. If not, let's pray as we work out what God has to say from that lovely list and more. Lord, thank you so much uh, for people who are in the Bible who teach us how to live like Nehemiah. Um, and Lord, we do pray now for your help to understand your word. Lord, we thank you that all of it is useful. Uh, and we pray just help us now to hear it, to digest it, uh, and to obey it. The wall is finished. General uh, William Booth, uh, a great Methodist preacher, set up the Salvation Army. He was said to have said, when attempting any great work for God, it is first of all impossible... It then becomes difficult, and finally it is done. The point being, when working and living for God, there is no stage you could call easy. 
Uh, and I wonder if you're a Christian here today, if you'd agree with that statement. It seems to fit here with Nehemiah's experience. Um, if you've been here the last few weeks, whilst we've been looking at this story, we've seen it go from nearly impossible <coughs> to rebuild Jerusalem's walls to this stage now, which I'm sure you'd all been waiting for if you've been looking at Nehemiah in verse 15, when the wall is complete. In chapters 1 and 2, uh, we've seen it at a stage where it is humanly impractical and impossible. Nehemiah is thousands of miles away in Persia. He's got no resources. And the nature of his employment as servant of the king made it, in human terms, utterly impossible that he could ever rebuild the walls. He's got no annual leave. He's got no holidays to take. He's got no transport way of getting there thousands of miles away. There's no way he was ever going to rebuild the walls. It's impossible. But after three months of waiting and praying, it suddenly and miraculously does take place. The king gives him leave and amazing resources to do it. But it still doesn't get easy, as we know if we've been here. Chapters 3 to 6, we've seen the opposition really begin to start. We've learned how to handle the attacks that will inevitably come when we take up the work of God. The work of God never goes unchallenged, we've seen. And we've seen how Nehemiah has handled these attacks by continually turning to God in prayer in the midst of this all. Booth, again, famously said, work as if everything depended upon work and pray as if everything depended upon prayer. And I think it would be fair to say that Nehemiah has done that in some way. But now, as I said, in the midst of this difficulty, from the impossible to the difficult, we now have the done in verse 15. The war was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. In sort of modern day uh, times, that would have been sort of the 1st of August to the 21st of September, roughly, in the summer months. Nehemiah had a really clear vision to rebuild the walls, and it's now been done. If uh, you're here for the first time, um, if you're listening in, you may be wondering why on earth are these Christians in Oxford reading a book (coughs) about a man who came to rebuild a wall? Which is a very good question, and one I asked myself when I um, was asked to do this. You may then be equally wondering the same question I had a few weeks ago. Why on earth we then look at this list of complicated names? Just another very good question. Uh, But I think before we get stuck in, it's it's worth just addressing these these two reasons, I think. I think firstly, as I've said, we believe that all the Bible is, in Paul's words, God-breathed and useful for teaching. If God put it in the Bible, then it must be there for good reason. Uh, I remember the first time I looked at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, and I I heard somebody was going to preach it and thought, well, this is going to be a short sermon. Um, and it was fascinating to look at the reason why it had been laid out how it was and what it pointed towards. And we'll see that as we look at Nehemiah. And that's the second thing we do see, is we see what this story points us towards. As Nehemiah cared deeply for the holy city of Jerusalem and its crumbling walls, it points us towards the amazing final city, the new Jerusalem, where one day those who believe in Jesus, having put their faith in him, will live with God forever in the new creation. So we spent six chapters looking at the building project, um, but ultimately a city without people is no city at all. Um, And so today we begin to focus a little bit more on the people, and that's what we're going to continue to do in the coming weeks as well. So we see through the person of Nehemiah some of what God desires his people to be, but how ultimately they need a greater leader and a saviour than Nehemiah. So I think we've got three main lessons we can learn um, about who these people are. Uh, before we're going to look a little bit further forward uh, about why Nehemiah is a little bit of an anticlimax, actually. So we're firstly going to see a people called to live with a godly perspective. Uh, We're going to secondly see a people called to live in purity. You'll notice the theme of peas, and you'll groan when I say a people called to have deep, generous pockets is my third one as well. 
So we'll see those three things before we look a little bit further forward. So firstly, a people called to live with a godly perspective. As I said, the project's done, it's complete. Uh, And now as that work is finished, we begin to look at the only reason a city exists, which is the people. Uh, I don't know about you, but whenever I finish a major project at work and it's done, um, I often like to give myself a sort of metaphorical pat on the back um, and have a little bit of a rest. But here, though, we see that Nehemiah can't and doesn't do that. It's a very short matter-of-fact verse in verse 15. The wall was completed. And then as we go on in this chapter, we see him move straight on to other matters. In uh, chapter 6, verse 17 to 19, we see him dealing with ongoing opposition in the form of Tobiah. We see him start chapter 7, he appoints gatekeepers, musicians, and temple priests. We then see him delegating leadership to his brother and this guy Hananiah. And then, 7 verse 4, we see him getting about the task of repopulating the city. If I was at a fourth P, it probably would have been perseverance. He just keeps going. And Nehemiah has done just that. He's done God's work in God's way as he faces opposition. But he's stuck to it. And then we see this key verse in verse 16, if you look down with me. It says, when all our enemies heard about this, the completion of the wall, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. At all times, Nehemiah has had a godly perspective, one where he doesn't think something is impossible if it's being done in God's way, and one which doesn't shy away from opposition when it comes. And here the enemies were afraid because they saw the wall had been built with the help of God. They could only have known about that because of the way Nehemiah went about his business. He ultimately pointed towards God in it all. And I think a foundational principle throughout all the pages of Scripture and the history of the church is that the challenge has always remained for the people of God to do the work of God so that those outside of the church will not be able to explain this work in purely human words and terms. Let me say that again. I think it's a foundational principle for the people of God to do the work of God so that those outside of the church will not be able to explain the work in purely human words and terms, just like the enemies surrounding Nehemiah here. Nehemiah had a godly perspective which saw God for who he is. He's massive huge, all-powerful and in control. If he wants it done, it gets done. And he made sure it was known that that was why he was doing it. And that there is no doubt it was done by anyone but God. It was finished in 52 days, like I said, the hottest months of the year, with intense opposition. There is no way outsiders looking in could not look at it and see that, as these verses say, the work had been done with the help of our God. I wonder how often we seek to do God's work our way, or how often we do not point towards God in what we do. And how often we see God countering that in Scripture. You don't need to turn to it, but but think of the story of David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, that people of God needed to discover the same principle. They were terrorized by a giant who came out and scared them every day. They decided that as, as no one was big enough to fight him, they just kind of let him continue to terrorize them. The people were looking for someone big enough, while God was looking for someone small enough. God was looking for someone so in touch with God that he'd be able to confront him and slay him so that the response could only be that God did that. Small boy David, few pebbles, defeats massive giant. Human wisdom goes, no way that could happen. Godly wisdom says that could only happen with the help of our God. 1 Kings 18, Elijah, the prophets of Baal, if you know the story, we see this principle again. It's a sacrifice burn-off, basically to see who is God. Is it Baal? Is it God? We see 450 prophets of Baal 
in their fancy clothes and their swag on one side, and we have Elijah, a man who would definitely not be wearing fancy clothes, on the other side, on his own. I wonder who you would have stood beside to try and prove who was the powerful God by asking their God to burn the sacrifices put in front of them. The prophets of Baal, with their show of numbers and tall wooden bonfires, or Elijah. Elijah then decides to make it a bit more interesting, uh, tells servants to dig a trench around his sacrifice, pours eight jugs of water onto the wood, then pours another eight waters of jug on the wood, and you'd be wondering what was going on here, and then he fills another eight jugs of water and pours them on the sacrifice again. So it's absolutely sopping wet and the trench is filled. I finished doing science as soon as I could in school, and yet my basic physics, or whatever subject fire burning is, <laughs> says that wood does not burn when it's wet. From a human perspective, it was actually impossible to get a spark without a flame, let alone a flame. And yet that's exactly what happened with Elijah's sacrifice. 1 Kings 18, verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Now, everybody there could only have had one response. God did that. God did that. And back at the wall, with the enemy saying it could not be done, they said from the beginning of time it could not be done. Nehemiah acts in such a way that the people of God can only say God did that. And we see here they look on in awe. And that's how it's meant to be in church, that people look in, our neighbours, our friends, our family, wherever it may be, and they go, God did that. People shouldn't be able to look in use logic and a nice sort of little tick sheet and go, that just makes sense. The, the culture of that church, the people in it, the way they treat each other, the way they love each other, that, that, that makes total sense. We want people to look in and go, only God could bring these people together. I knew him or her before they were converted, and only God can make him like he is now. And if you're here tonight and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, we'd, we'd love you to see that. Maybe at the end of a service, speak to someone next to you and ask them what they were like before they met Jesus. You see, unless there's a godly perspective about us in our lives, unless we point towards him and his changing work, and the fact that it can only be his changing work, anyone looking in will conclude we're religious and not that God is involved. People will not be able to declare that God is in this place unless the people of God are living with God, doing things for God with the help of God. So that the outsider, when they come in, can only explain it by saying God is in this place and God did that. The people of God are called to have a godly perspective of the powerful God. And here's a prayer for us as we reflect on this, that we'll be a people who do things that can only be done because God is helping us. We don't want to be a people who do things that can be explained away by mere human effort or logic. I, I don't know what we're up to with the Irving building project at the moment, but we know that if we were ever to get that, the only possible explanation would be that God did that. Nehemiah constantly testified to the source of his power and his strength. I think the challenge for us is to be a people who have a godly perspective of a powerful God and live in light of that, so that anyone looking in at our church could exclaim that this work has been done with the help of our God. Secondly, then, we see the second thing here about what God's people are like, and that is that they are holy, separate, and pure. And the story of the massive pain in the neck, Tobias, is where we see this again. It may not be obvious straight away as we read it, but people are basically, they're writing letters to this man called Tobias. This is at the end of chapter 16. He would send them uh, those letters to others as well, and the people would then go to Nehemiah, speak about how good Tobias was, 
and then report back to Tobias about what Nehemiah had said. It, it's complicated, but it's basically they wanted to know what was going on because ultimately, as we've seen before, they were opposed to the rebuilding of this wall and repopulating this city, and Tobias trying to influence that. There are probably powerful families who feared losing power to those living under God's rule. But the issue here mainly is the first reference in Nehemiah to one of Judah's great problems, one of Israel's great problems, which is intermarriage with non-Jews. We, you look down there, you see in verse 18, many in Judah were under oath to him, and since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Allah, and his son Jehoanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. The issue is many of whom he was involved with were not Jews themselves, and hence they had very different priorities to what Nehemiah did and to what God called his people to do. Earlier in the book of Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah used to all be one book, and, and we'd seen the temple finished, and now the wall was, it was time for God's people to deliberately repopulate this holy city. That's what we see when we see this list of names as well. A holy people for a holy city. And the reason for the record, as I said, the genealogical record, was that the holy city of Jerusalem was to be repopulated by God's people, those who followed and worshipped God and God alone. We see further down in verse 64, if you flick to it, we see that those on that list who could not be proven to be of God's people were excluded initially until a priest could oversee things. You see, the issue of intermarriage, the issue of having God's people in Jerusalem was not a race issue. It's not about having a pure race, but about having a pure faith. There's a real danger of compromise, as we see here with Tobiah, when God's people start going out and marrying non-believers. It always leads to compromise, to divided devotion, to falling away, and then assimilation with other religions. It seems a bit shocking, but this is the big problem in the Old Testament. It's why it goes wrong in the first place, because that's what Solomon does, and it leads to the exile, and that's why the whole New Testament ends in an anticlimax here in Nehemiah, as we'll look at it a little bit. And I know if you're not a Christian here today, this may seem a little bit weird, possibly even quite intolerant. But I wonder if you could acknowledge this much with me, that it it might be slightly dangerous, Christianly speaking, for someone who loves Jesus and wants to go Jesus' way to, to date or marry someone who has no room for Jesus in their life. It always leads to compromise and assimilation with other religions. It leads to different priorities, which is exactly what we see here with Tobiah, as he's, he doesn't care about God's people coming back into the Holy City of Jerusalem. He's, he's more bothered about his power and influence, as we saw last week. You see, the people of God are called to live in purity, pure devotion, and worship of God and God alone. And we see this again at the start of chapter 7. If you look down, we see Nehemiah's priorities for the city. He appoints gatekeepers, musicians, Levites for temple servants. His first thought is of worship of God. The people he puts in charge of <laughs> Jerusalem. Notice that wonderful line about Hananiah, the commander of Citadel. He appointed him because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. See, this is what we're called to, first and foremost, to be. A holy people worshipping God. And worship is Jerusalem's reason for existing. And it's also ours as God's people today. And we see he gets that right straight away at the start. I wonder if we're a people whose first thought and primary purpose is worship. Are we taking purity and undivided devotion to God seriously? It's worth, though, noting at this point, remembering that from the beginning of time, salvation has been open to all people who put their faith in the one true God, not just those of a certain race. <coughs> to join the people of God in Nehemiah's day, you needed to separate yourself from nations and become a Jew. It, it could be done. 
But today, if you want to be part of God's people, all you need to do is put your faith in Jesus. If you're listening in today and you're not a follower of Jesus, let me make explicitly clear how free and unconditional the love of God is. If you want to be part of God's people today, all you need to do is recognize God as your creator, that he's holy, that you've sinned, that you've worshipped other things instead of him and made them more important than him. Recognize that you deserve to pay the penalty, which is separation from God forever, and then see the good news is just that good news because of what Jesus did. Because of his death on the cross and his resurrection, if you turn from your sin and confess to God, trust in Christ and you can be saved and you can be part of the people of God. So we've seen the people of God are called to have a godly perspective, to live in purity. And finally we see briefly how they're called to have deep, generous pockets to make the illustration. Look down with verse 70 at the end of a long list. It says, some of the heads of the families contributed to the work. The governor, that is Nehemiah, gave to the treasury a thousand darics of gold, 50 bowls, 530 garments for priests. Some of the heads of the families gave to the treasury for the work 20,000 darics of gold and 2,200 miners of silver. The total given by the rest of the people was 20,000 darics of gold, 2,000 miners of silver, and 67 garments for priests. We see... Here, God's people have generously contributed to the work here of rebuilding the walls. Marriage, as we've seen, and now generosity are both practical expressions of believers' obedience to Scripture. Those who love God's word will not neglect God's work. Although the greatest gift we can give to God's work is ourselves, we get a really good reminder here of not neglecting our responsibility in the regular giving of our money. I think we see two principles here. We see sacrificial giving, uh, and we see exemplary giving. Sacrificially, we see that these people, they've not yet fully established themselves in their homes, in their farms, in their businesses. They've just moved back from exile. They're they're refugees. And they did not reason that they'd wait until things stabilized and then see where to give or how much. They didn't wait for the climate to come better. They thought, as one commentary says, they put God first, believing that if they honored him, he would care for them. It's a great challenge for us for sacrificial giving. Secondly, I think importantly, we see exemplary giving. We see Nehemiah setting the example in the reference to what the governor gave. He knows how wrong it would be for a leader to expect from others what he's not already giving himself, which is another good challenge we see. Now, as I said, I think these are three great things we're called to think about and ponder. That that godly perspective, that life of purity and, and that generosity. However, as we see Nehemiah's war has been finished, not only do we see these truths about people of God, but we also get the sense of a massive anticlimax, even in the midst of seeing these great things. God has continually prophesied about what this holy city would be like. But there's a massive difference here between the promise and the reality. Uh, I wonder if any of you um, have ever looked at a travel brochure or a travel website. I'm sure you have. um, And you see pictures like this. looks absolutely beautiful. Um, looks stunning. And then if you were ever to arrive at that place, what you'd actually see would be that. The, the difference between the promise in that photo and the reality is pretty stark. Here comes my favourite. It's a swimming pool obviously big enough for a man to use a surfboard in, bizarrely. But actually, it's merely just a tiny little hot tub. The difference between the promise and the reality is absolutely massive. 
God not only spoke of the warning of exile, but he then spoke of what it would be like for the people after exile. He said the exile would last for 70 years, and he told them what it would be like when they got home. And here are some of the holiday brochure promises uh, that had been made to the people. Uh, Through the prophet Ezekiel, he talks about uh, many people coming to the land, increasing the number of people who would be fruitful and numerous. That's that's Isaiah, that's not Ezekiel. You'll trust me in a minute. It's Ezekiel 36, if you want to flick that. We then see the prophet Isaiah, who personifies Jerusalem as a woman, uh, she's going to have to enlarge her tents to accommodate her many children and offspring. It, it's picture language for population explosion. There's Ezekiel. You can believe me now. I'll increase the number of people and animals living on you, and they'll be fruitful and become numerous. And finally, uh, we get to Zechariah. This one's really interesting because it's written at the same time as the book of Nehemiah. Uh, and through the prophet Zechariah, God says Jerusalem won't have a wall, which is brilliant considering what we've been looking at uh, for the last few weeks. Uh, but it won't have a wall because it will have so many people in it. Notice that. So, so the travel brochure promises here is that when the exile ends, there are going to be shed loads of them to move back into the land. And then look back with me at, in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4. It says, Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. It's a bit like you see in those apocalyptic movies where it's completely empty. And then you look at the list of names a bit more closely. There's a list of people who came out of captivity in Babylon. Uh, and it's kind of like the who's who of Jerusalem. And have a look at the numbers. Uh, we read them out earlier. The descendants of Parosh, 2,172. The Levites, are 74 of them. The musicians, 148. And the summary in verse 66. The whole company numbered 42,360. It's hardly population explosion. It's hardly what's been promised with a city without walls because of the great number of people in it. <coughs> Jump with me quickly then, spoiler alert, to chapter 11, verse 1. And we see, it says here, Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. The population is so small, they have to run some sort of lottery to boost the numbers. So that's the first anticlimax. And the second is what we've already seen about the compromise on, on intermarriage with Tobiah and the people falling into the same old sins again and again that they had throughout the Old Testament. Nehemiah from the start has desired to rebuild his city, fueled by these promises, and yet there's a whiff of it all being for nothing. Now, as we finish, what is the effect of this anticlimax here? Well, I think the effect is to get us to look beyond Nehemiah to something bigger and better than Nehemiah's walls. To look for a city that is much more like a palatial metropolis than Nehemiah's empty Jerusalem. So turn with me to Hebrews 12. It's page uh, 1211, 1211. And verse 22. Let me read verse 22 to 24 for you. As the writer says, uh, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, not the earthly Jerusalem, but one Nehemiah, but to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, a new relationship, and to the sprinkled blood, Jesus' death, that speaks a better word 
than the blood of Abel. So by faith in Jesus, if you're a Christian here today, your name is written on the list of another city. It's a city rebuilt in glory. It's a city bursting at the seams with righteous people made perfect by the death of Jesus who are not slipping back into their old sins. It's a city that trumps Nehemiah's Jerusalem in every single category. And what then is the application for us? Look at verse 28 with me. It says, Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Remember what we saw of what the people of God are to be like? With a right perspective. And here it's put that we will be a people who worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, which is exactly what we saw people do when they saw that the walls have been built with the help of our God. A people living in purity and worship, and we see that call again to worship this great God until that time when the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven and God will dwell with his people forever. Nehemiah points us towards this great, populous, holy city. And it calls us now, before that time, to live lives which scream to the watching world that the things we do, the way we love each other, the way we act towards each other, that these things could only be done with the help of our God, our great, glorious, awe-inducing God. Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for the way it challenges us to to live now and it points towards that magnificent day when you will reign forever uh, in the new Jerusalem. Thank you that because of Jesus, anyone who puts their faith in you can be there on that day and for eternity. Lord, now I pray, help us to live with this perspective of how great you are, uh, to be pure and holy in our lives and to respond in generosity as we look to that day. Thank you, Father, for your word and for just who you are. Amen.